The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining me in the studio today from the university's Department of Business Administration is Assistant Professor Anu Sivaraman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. The reason I've asked Anu to come down and talk here, she's known worldwide by a different name, at Blue Hen Prof in Twitter. Tell us about some of your experiences with Twitter. Twitter was something I joined to find out what it was about. I was just curious when it when it first became a movement. Um, and then I realized that it's better than RSS feeds for me to learn about different news articles, news mediums at any given point in time. Um, so I started subscribing to Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and all these magazines through Twitter. Uh, slowly I realized that you can get these articles for free if you go through Twitter than if you go to their website. So initially that was the setup. I enjoyed reading them, and because they were free, I started distributing them to my students. And now it's become a fully, you know, fully integrated part of my course where my students read material through Twitter. So you actually now use Twitter to communicate with your students? Yes, to send material to them, to receive material from them, and to have conversations with them outside the classroom. How do you manage to do that? Because Twitter's out there in the middle of the whole wide Internet. Um, As long as we use hashtags and we kind of mention each other in the the Twitter messages, you're okay. You're, You're within your own space, and that's what we do on my feed, every time they tweet me an article, they'll, they'll say at Blue Hen Prof, so it comes into my, it's like an inbox mail. Um, and every time I send something out to the class, I use a hashtag, like I have BUAD301 for my intro to marketing class, 302 for my marketing research, 110 for my freshman. So they know it's coming at them. Um, but, the, but the good thing about this is my 302 students read general business articles that I send my freshmen, and my freshmen read what I send my marketing students just out of curiosity. So there's a lot of general knowledge circulating in that pool, if you will. How is it different from using a blog for students and the faculty member or TA to talk back and forth with, which is what I tend to do in my classes? I actually think it's quite similar, except that this is microblogging. And this is more current. Uh, microblogging in the sense it's only 140 characters or less. So very quickly they can tell me their primary thought about an article. Um, they can also share the links very easily. It's kind of instant. Um, you have to log into a blog, go to a page, look at it. You know, Here you just go into the app and all the Twitter messages come rushing at you. I feel like this is simpler, smaller, um, concise. You have only 140 characters. You have to be smart about how you use them. You cannot ramble on forever. So, <laughs> Do the stu- any of the students trip up over that 140-character limit? Sometimes they have more to say. They'll send you multiple tweets. I like that. Um, if they have more than one thought, they're free to use more than one tweet. Uh, yeah, but there's no rambling. You can't. You simply cannot ramble on, tweet, on Twitter. 
when you tweet. Yeah, a lot of students think, oh, no, we have to write a 10-page paper, and that's the the horrible thing. But having to edit your prose down, edit your ideas down to one page or two paragraphs or 140 characters, that's quite a challenge for students. I always tell them writing small, concise, meaningful notes is much, much more difficult than writing a long piece. Was it Ernest Hemingway or someone who wrote a short story that was just one sentence that said, uh, baby clothes for sale never used or something like that. That one line conveys <laughs> so much about what that story could be. Um, and I think Twitter is like that. You could say so much in, in 140 characters if you use it wisely. Sometimes I, I, I don't even comment on the articles. I just give them a headline and send them the link. And those are the ones I get a lot of feedback on because I'm not expressing my viewpoint yet, but so they can come at it from all angles. So it almost invites their feed, exactly. Their feedback. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's um, sounds like you're using it a lot for, as you said, a substitute for an RSS feed for a news feed. Correct. For your students. Correct. Um, have you found us had other uses for you in your teaching? Have you? in the communication you've had with people outside the university, for example? Absolutely. I have two guest speakers coming in this semester, both of whom I've never seen in person, both of whom contacted me through Twitter, um, and they expressed interest. Um, they're UD, one of them is an UD alum, other one is not. Um, but they found the feeds and the back and forth exciting, and they want to come talk to the class. They volunteered, and I was happy to take them up on it. Not because we are short of guest speakers, but it's always nice to have new people join the community, be part of you know what we are trying to do here. They're paying their way here. They're coming here. One's coming from New York City, going to spend the whole day with us, wants to recruit from UD. Uh, I was not, you know... You can tell from my accent. I'm not from here. So You're I'm... not? Well, you must be from downstate. <laughs> so I network using Twitter. Whatever contacts I make, I make through Twitter nowadays. Um, my Facebook page is exclusive to family. I don't use that for work. And Twitter is exclusively for work. I don't use it for family. So keep the two apart. Actually, that's a great point. We hadn't planned to talk about it, but mm-hmm. I think that, that that is a very good point. I mean, that whole idea of segregating your social presence mm-hmm. for different functions. Yeah, I'm, um, I want my students to fear me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't want them uh, on my personal Facebook page. So I, when I first started the Facebook page, it was completely for family use. And I didn't want to mix the two. Um, so it's family and friends. And when I first started Twitter, um, I thought I should keep it only for business purposes because that that was why I was curious about it in the first place. So I kept it for work and slowly, you know, I understood that keeping them separate was smart. I don't want my students on my personal feed. I don't want to be on their personal feed either. Um, so it, it kind of keeps everything nice and clean. Would that I had kept my Facebook feed that clean. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of former students who have found me there. But it's it's, you know, professional. I think that's the way a lot of us on the faculty and staff need to be thinking. That is keeping things separate. So I've got a personal and a professional Twitter feed. With the Twitter feed, um, students stay on even after they've graduated. Um, I don't kick them out, and they don't seem to unfollow, so that's a good sign. And they still participate. When I post something for class, I get responses from people who graduated like three, four years ago, which is is cool, I think. Um, I also have a LinkedIn page, and they know how to find me there. So... Students have graduated, current students, all of them linked to me on my LinkedIn page. So Twitter and LinkedIn kind of serve a good purpose in terms of social media presence. For... Isn't that cool when you have former students connect with you that way? I am I am always flattered. It's it's I don't know if 
they really want me there, but I'm very flattered when they get in touch. What are they usually getting in touch about? It's is it students who are seeing things that you think they should pass on to their your current students? Yeah, I mean, usually I have them chat. I some students tweet about what they're doing at their current job, so I might post a question and I might say, you know, Julia, what are you doing as a buyer for Coles? Can you tell me? And they would tweet back a few sentences or on LinkedIn. They'll send me an email, which they'll allow me to share with my friends and and with my students. So that's very helpful, I think, to coming from someone who's just out into the market a year or two um, to get feedback from them. And they don't have to come all the way down to do it. I mean, they could do it through email, but somehow Twitter seems more open. So if my students want to write to them, they can get feedback, get help. Um, I know I've put a few of my current students in touch with my former students through Twitter and through LinkedIn to help them find jobs. It's it's an easy way to connect. Somehow it seems easier than email. Email seems so tedious, doesn't it? <laughs> it's funny you say that, I mean, because if I need to communicate with my son who's in his 20s, I need to text him or tweet him. Yeah, text text is even better. If I could find a way to assess text, I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think that that's going a little crazy here. Correct. We're talking today on Campus Voices with at Blue Hen Prof from University of Delaware's Business Administration Department. She's also known as Anu Sivaraman, assistant professor, and some of her research is in the area of students' use of technology. Um, currently, we're working on trying to find a way to assess Twitter participation. Um, I'm using it as a class participation device. So my TA and I sift through the messages, and we give class participation to anybody who contributes through Twitter so and makes a useful contribution. Count stores, they're great. Yes, because I, in, in the 50 minutes I'm in class, how many of them can participate? You know what I'm saying? You know, hands go up, hands go down. Um, so I tell them, hold it in your head till you walk out of class. As you're walking to your next class, tweet me your thought. It still counts. You still get class participation. And sometimes it's not just the 15 minutes after class. I've gotten tweets at like 1 a.m. in the morning, and I've had a meaningful conversation for 15 minutes with someone from my class who just saw an example, you know, at a nightclub that he was at, you know, so it, it it's active participation. I'm not recommending everybody stay up till one o'clock to do this, but if you're an insomniac, it comes in handy. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it What is it you're going to be assessing or what is it you're trying to study and how students use social I'm, media? I'm trying to see, um, number one, are they finding it beneficial? Number two, are they reading it in depth? You know, are they retaining what they're reading? Is it just a cursory read that you're you know, perusing through the titles and, and headings and not doing anything more than that? How deep is it? That's that's another question I'm asking. And what kind of learning is occurring there is what I want to try and understand. At this point, I feel like they are reading, they're retaining some of it. I want to see how we can increase the retention, what we can what we can develop in terms of tools to help them increase the retention. Are there any other tech device, you know, tech tools out there that can help them? Um, these are some of the questions we are asking, and we want to be able to answer that. A former physics professor at this university, now the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, used to talk about trying to steal his students' beer time. <laughs> I mean, is that is that what you're saying happens with the social media? So the students end up being hooked on your subject for time when they're not in the classroom? I, I want them to notice things around them that are related to my class, of course, because 
take one of the courses I'm teaching. It's Intro to Marketing. They are not marketing majors. Most of the, them in the class are not marketing majors. In fact, across 110 students, I have five students who are marketing majors. The remaining are business majors, arts and sciences, psychology, so on and so forth. To get them interested in a course and to participate 100% in a course that's not part of their major, I think is a challenge for anyone who teaches courses like this. By doing this, I'm bringing their daily life into the classroom. And we begin every class for the first 10 minutes. The question I ask is, what did you see around you that is related to this class? It doesn't have to be related to the topic I'm teaching that day, but they come up with fantastic examples about what's going on around them and how it relates to this class. And some of it could be the Twitter articles that I tweeted. It gives them some material to bring to class and to share. And I think that is important. Once they realize that it, it's like going on one of those roller coaster rides. Once you get hooked to that adrenaline rush, you're likely to want it again and again. Once you get the attention, you're likely to want it again and again. That's what I'm banking on. And it seems to be working. One semester I made it mandatory. It was as quiet as crickets. No, nobody participated when it was mandatory. The minute we made it optional, like you could go on the Twitter feed and learn if you want to, now everybody's participating. Everybody's finding it exciting. I don't know why, but that's what happened. You have found a way to actually engage the students with, with your subject matter. That's really great. I, I, I'm enjoying it, too, which makes it fun. You're allowed to have fun when you're teaching? <laughs> when you're teaching marketing, yes. <laughs> Speaking of, of teaching marketing, um, you and Alex Brown are the two folks who in business administration who teach about internet marketing. Yes, I used to teach that course before. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your experience having taught that class, class and, <laughs> and, and, and what you've brought forward into your marketing classes now. I mean, Alex is the expert. Um, he introduced me to this idea of blogs and using blogs in the classroom as, an, as a tool, as a project. That's what we did in the IT applications for marketing class. I'm trying to now bring this idea of e-portfolios to my freshmen. So they start building their e-portfolios from their freshman year. Um, and I, I think it's a great tool, in, you know, instead of having a paper portfolio, to have something on the internet readily available to share with um, employers when you're looking for internships or jobs four years down the line. It's also a good repository for everything that you've done at the university in terms of academic achievements. Um, so that is something that I'm working on. and and. In some sense, Alex got me hooked up to all of this, so I'm very, very thankful to him. And we still continue to have our conversations about technology. I know he's baffled about Pinterest. Um, he doesn't get Pinterest, he? Does doesn't he? get Pinterest, no. Do I, you I, get Pinterest? I get Pinterest <laughs> for personal use. Um, every time I want to buy something, I go pin it there, but I'm still struggling with what to do with it, academically speaking. Um, I think it has a use somewhere. It's just a question of figuring out how to assess uh, what happens. Assessment is a big issue in most of these tools. So once we figure out how we can assess student participation, um, I think then we'll have a good tool on our hands. Now be careful. Sounds to me like you're falling in love with a tool, Pinterest, <laughs> instead of looking at a function and seeing how that tool can help you. Yeah. First, you have to have, you, you have to like it first. You have to be infatuated enough to figure out what it is. And once you like it, maybe you'll figure out it. That's, that's the way I approach things. Um, Alex goes about it a different way, but we'll see who gets there first. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of falling in love with tools, Anu is one of the faculty members who helped us pilot an alternative learning management system here on campus. It's an interesting one called Canvas. It's a combination open source software and for-profit 
distribution system, mm-hmm. I guess we could mm-hmm. say. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how your students reacted to Canvas? I think you, you actually did a study, didn't you? For we, Yeah, we did a small survey at the end of it. Um, we went into Canvas thinking it is super easy for the students and for us. Um, I like the way it is set up. Um, I loved uh, it. took me like two an hour to set up my entire course on Canvas when I didn't know anything about it. Um, I also found it easy in terms of... Um, sharing the instructions with the students. I literally gave them a two-page instruction sheet that had about 20 lines of text on it, and that's it. And they went with it from then on. Um, I had very, I had no issues. In fact, not nothing even in terms of teething issues. Um, At the end of the semester, we did a survey, and we actually expected to find uh, Canvas to be at least as good as Sakai, you know, uh, and that's what we found. We found Canvas to be marginally better, or that's what students thought it was. Um, and I was very thrilled with that result, even though some people said, why, it's only marginally better, because you have to compare 12 weeks of Canvas use versus two or three years of Sakai use. Right. That's you- what we are looking at. And if Canvas can get to or a little above Sakai in 12 weeks of use with practically no training, uh, it can only get better from here on. So that's my take. I, I didn't use it the way the long distance people use it. I used it as a support system for in-class instruction, and I was very happy with the results I got. I know a few other people used it for long distance education, um, and you'll have to talk to them about their experience. But I've now I've now switched completely over to Canvas. All my courses are run on it, and I have no complaints. Just before we came into the studio, I was meeting with one of my students, and he was commenting that he has some faculty members that don't use Sakai, they don't mm-hmm. use Canvas, and he's just horrified. I mean, he now expects it. Correct. And and I think it is, um, it's natural, right? I mean, you go to four classes or five classes, you have three classes using Sakai, one class using Canvas, which I think is the ratio right now, correct me if I'm wrong. And if one prof doesn't use it, it may not suit the course, and that's fine. Uh, but if it's an easy way of distributing the material instead of giving out, you know, 50,000 pieces of paper in class, I, th- I think it's worth the time to learn to use it. Uh, in fact, I don't distribute any handouts in class. It's links to web pages on my slides through Twitter or through Canvas. And they click on it and they read it. They don't need to print it either. Um, so it works out well. And if, if you take things like the Wall Street Journal, it's not just the article. You have a related video. You have interactive links. So when you give them the link... You go beyond the article itself. Um, so I think there are advantages to using an online learning management system or a web page or whatever you're comfortable with. Um, but if you're not, we have training sessions. I'm sure IT runs a whole bunch of Absolutely. training sessions. Yeah. My colleagues in IT will help train you faculty members if you're unsure about using these tools that Anusiva Raman and I are talking about right now here on Campus Voices on WVUD. I managed to plug everything there in one sentence. You're doing a good job for IT. <laughs> Suddenly they're going to be flooded with phone calls. <laughs> you know, one thing, speaking seriously about um, learning management systems like Sakai and Canvas, in my use, I mean, I, I teach a couple of classes a year um, here for the computer science department. But one of the things I've found is I find it makes me feel like I'm more accountable to the students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Because you're you're there, they're interacting with you. Um, in, in Canvas, for example, we set up discussion boards and we discuss through it. Um, it's cut down my office hours traffic, but 
I'm interacting more. They're coming back to me more at the end of the course or after the course. I feel somehow we are able to make that connection online, which is what some people say you cannot do using these online tools. I actually make better connections through online, you know, through these, through Twitter or through Sakai or through Canvas, because you kind of are there even after hours or office hours. Um, in fact, this Sunday, I have office hours from 8 to 9.30 at night when I'm working, and they are online, and they have an assignment due on Wednesday. So we all sit together at between 8 and 9.30 at when, night. At 8 o'clock at night on Sunday, you're going to show up in Learner Hall and sit in your office? No, no, on Canvas and meet them on Canvas, meet them online. Um, you can do a video chat if you want them to see your pretty face, but I choose not to. Um, and we chat, we it's, it's almost like texting back and forth. So they're very comfortable with that setup. I do it every time there's an exam um, that I feel it's necessary to meet them or if there's an assignment due. The assignment is due the following Friday, but Sunday nights somehow are very comfortable. I've tried it in the past. It works really well. I have about 20 to 25 students come online out of a class of 45, which I think is good. And some just come to observe and listen. In case you give away the answer to yeah. question 13. <laughs> they try. They try. <laughs> I'm alert on Sunday nights, so I don't give away anything. I guess the thing that I've found using learning management systems is that encourages me to post my slides, mm-hmm. the handouts, rubrics for assignments, all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And And I don't post it before class. I used to post it before class, and I think it takes away from the element of surprise. It takes away from the element of, you know... bringing in discussion while showing them an image for the first time for a brief few seconds. So now I post it after class. So they take down the slide number, they use that to take down their notes, and then they do get all the slides and all the examples and all the images. Um, So it's worked out well for me. I know some people who post before class and they come and take down notes on those slides. That works as well. I think it kind of feel, it makes the students feel like they're part of the course they're part of the planning of the course. They're part of creating this course or having this experience with us. Is it necessary to share everything? Not. I've, I have taught without sharing the material before. Um, but for the nature of the courses that I teach, giving them the material either before or after is not a big deal, so I do. And I guess that's why you do too. Yeah, man, to me it feels – I do it after class too. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the information is shared after class. But it's, again, to me it's just part of the whole culture you're building in the classroom. This isn't a face-to-face classroom, mm-hmm. and whether you're here or not, you're responsible for what happens here. Correct, correct. And the technology helps us enforce that. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you. In terms of getting participation from them, um, I haven't used Canvas to get that kind of interaction from them. That's probably why I went to Twitter. Um, I'm not able to get that live chat feel on a regular basis throughout the day through Canvas. Canvas has an app for Apple phones. I don't know if it does for Android, but it's still not Twitter. So Twitter fulfills that requirement where you can get that ongoing interaction. Immediacy, yeah. Yeah, I, I will walk out of here and I'll have three mentions on Twitter about some article that they want me to look at or some comment that they couldn't make in class. I think that's important. Now, does that keep the the on button on all the time? Um, some people might say that, you know, why do you have to be on all the time? You know, nine to five, five o'clock, you have to turn off. I agree with that, but how are you going to not be on all the time 
if you want that kind of interaction. I'm not saying you have to tweet at 11 o'clock at night, but sometimes I get a tweet at 7 and I respond to it because I enjoy chatting with that student or with that person. Um, I may not be available from 2 to 4 in the afternoon. I may not return a single tweet in the middle of a working day, but I do sometimes return a tweet or two in the evenings. So it's not a question of being on all the time. It somehow makes it easier for me to interact, let me put it that way. It's You think of, of tweeting and, and other kinds of things with social media, about that immediate impact and wanting that immediate feedback, but you can do, do it asynchronously, a little Correct. bit like email. I mean, get caught up with your tweets when you get out of a meeting or Absolutely. you get out of a class. And I, and I don't tweet for a couple of days at a time if I don't find anything useful. I don't tweet for the sake of tweeting. Uh, but there'll be a news day when there are five different things happening. And of course, I'll tweet multiple articles. You know, this morning, Disney shut down Lucas. Disney is going to fire people. Disney is going to do this, that. So you have, I, I, had, I have like four articles lined up to tweet today. Um, tomorrow, there might be nothing. So it's it's a question of how big a news day it is and then how much you want to tweet out of that. Um, the whole of spring break weekend, I barely tweeted anything because I know they're away, they're not reading. Um, but now this week, they're slowly going to get back into the groove and they're going to get a lot of reading material. So it's not necessary to be on all the time is what I've discovered. And they don't mind it either. I, I reply to tweets like two days later and they're fine with it. Well, you've been talking, I've been trying to think about why it is that we get so much interaction using something like Twitter. And I'm, do you think that some of this participation you're seeing with Twitter is coming because it's such a short little nugget that the students are focused right on that piece of content? Yes and no. Um it does allow them to focus on a short piece of information. And, and we know as um, as these generations progress, they are better with shorter pieces of, mul- you know, shorter multiple pieces of information. But they seem to carry it with them. In, you know, and somehow it, it goes with them to other areas. For example, I had an exam question that called for an example. And a lot of these students used an example you know, use multiple examples from the Twitter articles that we had sent. They didn't cite the exact art. They didn't say, you know, Times of India, so-and-so, day, and so-and-so. But they said, we read about this brand that is international, and this is the name of the brand, and this is how this helps answer this question. I think that is wonderful, the fact that they're not, they're not just tweeting 140 characters and forgetting about it. They are able to retain it and bring it to a different context and write it as as a part of an essay question. So in some sense, I think it's giving them the content that they need to tackle uh, the connection between what they are learning and how it applies to the real world. So this is giving them short, sweet doses of information that they can use um, in a productive way. We started off talking with you about Twitter, and we ended up talking (laughs) with you about Twitter. Thank you very much for coming in, Anu. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. I really enjoyed it. And you can follow her on Twitter by following... At BlueHandProf. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware.
For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. Thank you.